Changing conversations. So, this is the episode that inspired me to create the Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot, and this time last year, I realized how much I missed interviewing people. I have so many fascinating people in my life uh, that I wanted to have deeper conversations with and keep them on record. First on my list was Sister Pat from A Place Called Home. I like to say she's a gangsta nun. I mean, she was in the Civil War in Mozambique. She lived in Rome while working with the Vatican and staked her claim in the heart of South Central in the early 90s while working at a place called home. I also never thought that I would be great friends with a nun, but I love her so much. I had so many questions about her, her life, and even about God. There's so much noise, and there are so many messages that are going out to people that I think it's very difficult for people to really to get in touch with themselves, maybe at the deepest level of their being, however they wanted to say it, and to say that there is a higher power, however a person's understanding would be. You're listening to Episode 8 of The Idea Fountain. Every month I interview somebody that has changed my life, Sister Pat has been a part of my life for about 15 years. Her knowledge of pop culture constantly blows me away. She'll send me emails about Apple being a trillion-dollar company. She even caught my cameo on The Defiant Ones. Today will be an opportunity for both you and me to really get to know Sister Pat. So first... I don't even know how somebody becomes a nun. Sister Pat, you were telling me you got to know some sisters while in college and understand their mission. I thought, well, there's, there's, there's a bigger, there's more to life. And uh, the whole idea of loving God and uh, loving other people. And really, that was it. And I can remember it was in my sophomore year of college that I spent that summer on an Indian reservation. And it was at a time, it was 1961, and at that time there was no consciousness of what our Native Americans were going through. There was no consciousness of a movement to be aware of the social difficulties Uh, which they have inherited because of our history as a nation. And I began just to to look and and to explore and to think, you know, whatever it is, I know my my life needs to be uh, having a bigger focus and, and dedicated, really. That was it. Wanted to love God and to love other people and to do what I could to be able to accompany and to help other people. I think it's uh, so interesting because in my life, any nuns I've been around, aside from you, have a lot of times been authority figures. 
right? Because I went to Catholic high school. Yes, you told me. Or, you know, I don't know. You see some nuns at church. Yes. They're very focused. Yes, yes. When you encountered the sisters, how were you, I guess, able even to have those relationships, right? How did you get to know them? Were there events going on or was it, how did the community build? Well, uh, it, it was a, a college where we were residents, so we were there, and it was a v very different time. It wasn't like it is now where when you have people in college, they're independent, coming and going. It wasn't like that at all for us. We were in a residence hall, and we had uh, three or four sisters in that residence hall, and then, of course, in the classes that we had and on the campus, we were constantly interacting with one another. So we got to know them very well. And uh, they were part of something that was much larger than what we were part of. And that was great. And when I transferred from the college in New York to the college here in California, it was the same group of people. It was the same sisters. Not actually the same, but it, they had the same spirit. They were very open. They were very open. And uh, very loving, very kind, very nurturing, really. Beautiful, beautiful spirit. Very real, very real, very human. And then when you decided that was the path you wanted to go in your life, what was the process after college? Well, I didn't finish. It was the end of my junior year. I just had two classes to go, but I entered after my junior year, and our novitiate was up in Santa Barbara. And uh, in our group, there were 12 of us and uh, came from different places where that community had been teaching. And um, we began a training program there. Um, you were there for about nine or ten months, and then you began what was called a novitiate program, which was um, classes in theology, which I had had because I was in college, but we had more of them with the Franciscans there in Santa Barbara, Franciscans who had a theologate there at the old mission, if you're familiar with mm -hmm. Santa Barbara. And uh, it was a great group of people, and we were there. We were in that program for about a year and a half, year and eight, eight, uh, tw 20 months, and then you made um, vows. You made vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And when you started off, you made vows for one year. One year, called temporary, and then another one year, and then three years, and then after that it was called final or perpetual profession. It's, it's, it's the, the whole training that ideally you know what you're doing. It's not like marriage where you take your marriage vows. and This was like a whole preparation period. The living of the life, the living of the life, and then reaffirming for a year, recommitting for another year, then recommitting for three years. So um, that was it. That was it. We had a great group of people. There were tremendous challenges in the church at that time, tremendous challenges, because when I entered, the Vatican Council had just opened in 1962, and for Catholics, the Vatican Council was throwing open the windows, and as Pope John Twenty-Third had said, let the Spirit come in and blow and renew, renew the church. And the big thinking, which was somewhat revolutionary at the time, if you can believe it, 
was the whole sense of the church in the modern world and the church that is a, that is sensitive to the needs, the aspirations, the dreams of humanity. Because the church, up until that time, had largely been thought of as building church, hierarchy church, hmm. bishops, priests. But then the church became the people of God that were all the people of God. Oh, so and it was a big, it was a big, it was a big change, and the whole world was the renewal of the church in terms of the modern world. So it, I, I've tried, I've always been surprised in hearing about history at that time that it was really shocking that John F. Kennedy was Catholic. That's they right, didn't yeah. know if he could be president. Right. And that always felt crazy to me right. in my lifetime because That's Catholics right. seemed so normal. Well, he became president in 1960, which was before the Second Vatican Council. So the church at that time was, uh, well, let's say not as open as uh, it has been in the last 50 years, although even that is a struggle, as we can see in the life of, of Pope Francis. But as, so when I entered the, my religious community and took vows within the church, it was at a time of great renewal, great renewal. And then that council, Vatican II, uh, was from 1962 until 1968, and there was, there was just a whole lot of change. Mass up until that time was in Latin. Really? And it became the vernacular. Everything was more that you were in touch with people and in touch with people's lives. And uh, there was a great sense of going out. It wasn't this sense that the church was as it had been in medieval times, in a very walled-in, you know, Catholics with Catholics, Catholics talking to Catholics, Catholic. And one of the, uh, the great documents of, of Vatican II was the whole thing of ecumenism, of dialogue with people of other religion, of dialogue among, among Christians themselves. And so there was Catholic-Jewish dialogue, Catholic-Muslim dialogue. It was just a whole sense of openness and uh, a sense of appreciating. This was appreciating the values, the gifts that we have in this human family. It was a whole change. It's been going on. It's been going on. It went on in the time of John, well, he, John the 23rd, and now Pope Francis. Pope Francis is of the same openness, going out to people, loving people, not so much talking in terms of dogma or do this or do that, but his sense of the church, he said the church is like a field hospital where people are wounded. And our mission, like that of Jesus, was to go out to the wounded and to try to heal the pain, the brokenness that we experience, which everybody experiences. Which, for Pope Francis, too, it's a, it's, it's a very um, embracing, all-embracing, I shouldn't say embrace, embracing sense of um, people going out. I find that very attractive, very, very attractive in terms of like living where we live here, the people I meet every day, 
um, that's really what people want to experience. They don't want to experience all these rules or all this, this or do this or don't do that. Or but they, uh, so it's a to me it's a very inviting. It's inviting, and that of course that leads into Deborah. <laughs> When I met Deborah. Oh wait, I still have a couple more questions. All right. Oh wait, wait. Let, me, let me just let me just say that I mean that was part of the thing of Deborah because Deborah, as we know, has suffered so much herself, and she's been able to go out and to heal the wounds of other people. It's a very um, attractive, and I was I'm, you know that spirit I find very very attractive. I love that you just brought it to Deborah Constance, the founder yeah. of A Place Called Home, and how she's gone and healed people. Because before you brought that up, I was getting caught up on this idea of you being fresh out of school, you know, um, joining the sisterhood, and going out in the world to heal people. And I was thinking, what kind of training did you have? <laughs> or yeah. what do they tell you? And... It's interesting, like, Deborah didn't have formal training. She was working in an insurance company. She just went out and started helping people. Well, it didn't happen like that, though. I, I really made a lot of jumps. Okay, the thing is, at that time, my community, the Religious of the Sacred Heart of Mary, was primarily in the United States involved in education. In other parts of the world, like in Africa or different Brazil, different things. But in the United States, most of our sisters were involved in formal education. So after this novitiate period of which I spoke and taking vows of which I spoke, I went, I was sent out to a school. Um, it, was, it was our junior school actually here in Los Angeles and it was a boarding school. It was a boarding school, and um, we were with the boarders. These were when I first went out. It was these little junior school boarders, like they would have been second grade to eighth graders. Mm. And and then on another floor of that residence hall would have been the high school, the high school boarders. And then after four years, I went to Santa Barbara, and we had a boarding school there, and I was in that boarding school as well as teaching. So my background, my education, has been in terms of teaching. In terms of professional training, it would have been as a teacher. So that's a part I didn't go in, into in terms of it was really uh, education in a formal sense. Um, and then, uh, you know, being a nun, you've yeah. been able to travel the world. With which, our, within our community, yes. Within your community. Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, uh, it was uh, in the 1970s that I began to get involved what I would call province work that were organized, at that time it was geographically, into provinces. And we had a province which would have been California and we had the sisters in Honduras, we had sisters in Mexico, our province. Then we had some sisters who were 
individually, like at that time we had a sister who was up with the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, or we had a sister who was in Jerusalem in interfaith work. But um, I started to get involved in that. So initially it would have been California and New York, and then we had international meetings. We had sisters in Honduras, we had sisters in Mexico, sisters in Brazil, sisters in Portugal. So I would have gone to those different places but I would have gone as a member of this province here. But then, in the 1980s, I went to what we call our international level, and that's when uh, I was in um, what we would call an institute level, which would, would have been the entire congregation. And that's when I that's when I would have gone, not just visited, but accompanied our sisters and been in different parts of the world. For the, at that time, we had we were in four countries in Africa, Mali, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Mozambique, and then throughout Europe, and in Latin America, Central America, Brazil, primarily in Brazil. So that's when I did a lot of traveling for ten years. That would have been from 1985 to 1995 shortly until the time that I went to a place called home. And you sent me a really great message when I turned 40. I remember that. And you told me that 40 is a really great time in life yes. because you've had enough life experiences yes. and you have your foundation set yes. that you can take a really big risk. Yes. And you told me and blew my mind about what you were doing in your early 40s. Well, it would have been, uh, yes, I would have been, in, at, when I was in my early 40s, I would have been at this provincial level. Then when I, in 1985, when I would have actually been 44, I took on uh, a role with others, of course. Everything is with others, right? A team. On this more international level. And uh, in different parts of our religious institute, there were particular challenges. In Mozambique at that time, there was a civil war. And um, the situation was really, really, really enormously challenging. Uh, people didn't really have anything. They didn't have anything. There were a lot of refugees. There was a lot of guerrilla activity in the countryside. There was a lot that was going on. And we had to withdraw from some communities because of all the guerrilla activity and because of um, the, the really terrible, terrible situation that was going on. And at that time, I remember going to meetings and you could hear the bombs in the background, which really uh, was indicative of the whole historical evolution of what was happening in Africa too. You can't take Mozambique and, and not see within the context of all of Africa. At that time Mugabe was in Zimbabwe. He still is. That is now 33 years ago and Mugabe was hit in Zimbabwe where there are terrible problems. We have had to withdraw from Mali because we didn't have the people. And in Mali, not only did you uh, sp need to speak French, but you needed to speak the language of the people. 
and our sis we had French sisters there for a while, but then Portuguese sisters went, and the language situation was just too difficult uh, to surmount. But of course, in Mali right now, there's the whole uh, uh, tremendous difficulties now in terms of um, the different groups that are arising in the desert. And then where else did I live? Zambia. Oh, Zambia. And then um, Zambia was in the process of Zambianization, which is that when the, what shall I say, more colonial influences recede, then the, the, the things are, are handed over to the local people which of course is fantastic. So I was, you know, I observed, I, would, I did more observing than being instrumental because it was our sisters that were involved in all of this process. And you were working, I mean, I don't know if you always do or at the time, closely with the Vatican, right? I was in Rome. Well, I was, I was, uh, in the role that I was in, I represented our institute. And at that time there were different meetings. Uh, I never worked directly with the Vatican. We had two sisters who did were within that. One was in the Pontifical Council of Justice and Peace, actually a congregation within the Vatican, like a curial. And then we had another sister that was in the, the societies, the congregation of what they call the Societies of the Consecrated Life. That was another, and she was directly involved in that. So we had sisters, but what I was doing was more in terms of our institute and the, the dialogue with the Vatican in terms of other re, uh, congregations of religious, men and women religious, and that was what was going on at that time. Somebody told me, is this true, that you were considered Mother Superior? Is that? Well, of, of, of our congregation, of our congregation, of the institute to which I belonged. We Got were it. about 1,350 people at that time. Were That's smaller. a big deal. Well, it, 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 but the thing about it was you were with a lot of other people. You were yeah. with a lot of other people. I know. I, it, it's funny when you think about um, corporations. There's people that are CEOs or big bosses, and they're all with a lot of people too, right? But but very different. That's a very hierarchical model in a in a business corporate structure. Yeah. Even though ours was a corporate structure in terms of it being a body of people, the 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 model is much more circular than hierarchical. Mm. It's a much more circular model, where what you want is the participation of other people. It's more in terms of community building than a hierarchical model. So you, everything would be more like in terms of teams of people. Got it. Which is, in my view, far better. Because the gifts and the talents of people are then used, right? It's, it's just so much better. Um, so tell me about how you got connected to a place called home. Well... I left Rome in the end of 1985, and uh, you were I, living in Rome. I lived in Rome. I traveled about. Oh, I 50%. thought you just had visited there. A couple no, times. no, no, no. I li I lived there and then traveled a lot, but I came back to the United States at the end of '85, and then I was uh, given 
and encouraged to take a sabbatical. Before getting into anything, take a sabbatical. So what I did, uh, this was and and they and I, I don't want to interrupt, but just so I understand, did they want you'd seen so many hard things, right? Being in the Civil War in Mozambique and um, in your journeys, they thought for mental health it'd be great before you jump into your next mission to cleanse the palate, take care of yourself a little bit. Well, it really wasn't like that with with me. It it had more to do with the fact that I had really. Um, to adjust to being back in the United States. I had to really get to know the community of Los Angeles again because while I was away, the civil unrest happened in South Central and I was not here for that. In 1992, the Rodney King So what happens, you're away and even though you accompany, you're you're not living here. So it was really a time of readjustment and also not knowing what it was that you were being called to get to get into because you had to reinsert yourself. But I remember it was a it was an adjustment, it was a big adjustment to come back to the United States and to leave live in the United States. It's interesting because when you leave you have to adjust to wherever you're going. And you go, well you would have the same experience if you're in England. You adjust to wherever you are, right? But then when you come back, and this was like after 10 years, um, things had changed here, but I had changed too. You have changed, especially with all you experience. You change. And then there were big, even now, Sometimes if I hear something, there's like a gap in your life because you weren't here. Mm. It's very different. The, I, I can't relate to that from traveling because I've never lived internationally, but I can completely relate to yeah. that because my girlfriend Monica was in the Peace Corps. And she was in the Peace Corps before there was really internet and connectivity in Africa. And so she was out of pocket. And when she moved back to the States, she lived with me. And she would even admit that she was a mess at first. I mean, we would go to a concert and she would look dazed and confused and say, I can't believe I can't believe that this is happening. There are people that have bought tickets and they're standing in line and you couldn't go get something to drink. And I was like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> but she'd been living out in Mozambique. So you needed to adjust back to Los Angeles. Did you know about a place called home before you well, came? Well, I was on a sabbatical at Boston College for a couple of months, and I was coming back to Tarrytown, New York. This is the place where we have a lot of sisters. And um, the person who, who had taken on the role that I had been in, um, I, met her in I met her in New York, the state of New York, Westchester County, and um, she had been to a place called home. Deborah had just, just moved into the current 29th Street property mm. building. Before it was in a church basement, yeah. and then they moved So over. she just moved. So I had gotten the green light. What I wanted to do was, I wanted to do, just to be open, to do volunteer work and to go to South Central because when I was away, 
there had been so much upheaval. So I got the green light, and then when I was in New York, a group of our sisters had just been at 29th Street and met Deborah. And I got the green light, and when I met her there, she had this packet. In those days, you gave out a packet of information, and you had a video. I don't know if you remember, but you had a video of Deborah's interviews and the youngsters and all of that. And uh, this person, Catherine, Catherine Dolan, said to me, Pat, I think this is the place for you. So that was December of 96. And But let's talk about that, because a place called home in the early days was very different than it is now. Yes. Um, a place called home now, I sometimes tell people it's like Disneyland for volunteering. It's so well run. People are so happy. There are amazing things happening there. And a place called home has always had that spirit. But early days, it was really a place to get gang members off the streets. You know, the early days, there was a room with a pool table in it and everybody just hanging out. There weren't the programs and the focus and the scholarships that there necessarily are today. So I remember the early days of a place called home. You know, I came about five years after you did. But, I mean, that was a tough crowd in there. Hardcore gang members. What was your reaction or the other nuns' reaction stepping into one of the hardest communities and dangerous communities? Well, first of all, I knew that I did not know a lot. That's the first thing. And Deborah was there, and she was always... Uh, sharing with me um, different lessons where I could be able to understand the young people. And I remember one of them had to do with the fact of, of youngsters backsliding, you know, like after you spent so much time where hopefully they were making a change in their life and they were going forward, they'd slip back and they'd go two steps backwards. And I remember Deborah always saying, you have, to, you have to understand, you have to expect, there's going to be backsliding. But that's what we're here for. And the, and the whole thing was that we would be there for them. I mean, that was the big thing. The big thing was to be present. If they came out of jail or if they came out of this or they came out of that, they knew that a place called home was there, and it was a home. And they would come in, and you're absolutely right, they would hang out. They'd come out of detention, they would come, because they had no other place to go. They had no, maybe they didn't have a family. Food was given there. And uh, they would come and they would hang out because there wasn't the structure of the programs. We did have programs. We had mentoring, we had dance, we had the music room, uh, we had the school, we had a fabulous relationship with LAUSD and the AWAC program. Eventually, we got the dental clinic. We had different different other programs that would come along. But uh, it was really uh, a place for young people to be safe. And the things that, you know, she would say, leave your gun at the door or leave your... I mean, all of these things. Like the what we had, you know, no swearing, no, no guns, no this, no that. Those were the rules. And... Uh, 
they did come with guns and knives and because it was unsafe for them to come. It was different. And then, you know, I opened up, I closed, and sometimes when we'd be closing, we'd have drive-by shootings. Uh, I remember one time, one of the young people was cleaning his mop out in the front, and there was a drive-by, and a youngster was on the bicycle, and they shot the tire of the bicycle. That's the way it was because initially, initially, initially it was a safe place for young people to go after school when nothing else was available for them but to hang out on the street. And a place called home was a safe haven. And they got food and there were programs that developed, and they were great programs. They were great programs. Because Deborah always said, I want these programs to be what my son would get in West Los Angeles. Because the people who volunteered were tops in the music industry, or Jasmine Guy, or we had a great education program in the Lee White program. For people that uh, don't know Deborah Constance or have never met her, how would you describe her? Original. A totally original person. And every time you see her, you just say, there she is. Every time, you know, there's something new. There's something new about her. And... uh, I think, you know... You call, or you are called the prophet. But I think I, at the, I think she was a prophet. I really do, because she used to tell the people in the churches, "Open your churches, let in the young people. They have no place to go." That's why her and I wasn't here for this, but she was in the basement of a church. She talks about Bishop Jupiter. Then she was thrown out because it was the same time that there had been the. Um, the slayings, remember the cult leaders in Guyana, I don't know if you remember, but the first youngsters that came were African American and Hispanic, and it, the, the, the need was so great that the numbers exponentially grew from 14 to 28, 28 to 56, that type of growth, and the people were afraid that she's like a cult leader because she was attracting so many of these young people. So, uh, anyway, she was at the basement of church, and she used to say, why don't you churches open your, open your doors, let the young people in? They don't have any place to go. And as you say, it was dangerous. Our street was dangerous. Our street was very dangerous, 29th Street. And, um, I mean, I'd be there closing some nights, and young people would be jumping over the wall, and then the police would be following them, and... Um, How did that make you feel? Or, like, what was your relationship like with the police in that time? You know, I have so many questions. I have so many questions. Because one thing I struggle with is I'm a rule follower, right? And I've learned a lot about myself from volunteering at a place called home. That it's not just necessarily right and wrong. There's a lot of gray area, right? And that can be tough with the police, but it's got to be 
even tougher at times with the church, right? Here's right and wrong and sins, and then you're in the middle of all of it. What was that like? Well, to be honest, it, I, I never... Um, I never judged from the perspective of um, you know well although I you know right and wrong and what I saw was a very very needy community and people who were very needy and I saw young people who, if I grew up in the circumstances in which they grew up, I would be just as confused as they, maybe making the choices that they made. There were a lot of destructive influences within the community that were very attractive to them because they didn't have any place to hang out. and. Um, the whole gang membership and gang attraction and gang everything was very very real because for some of them they didn't have a family structure there wasn't a family structure and the thing about it was I could see, I could see and Deborah, Deborah believed you have to belong to something and they weren't belonging they were alienated and she used to say, come and join my gang, because she knew that they had to belong to something. I began to see that the gangbangers were not always there for one another, like it may have appeared that they were. They weren't necessarily always there for one another. I mean, those were, those were things that I kind of grew into and began to see that, um, you know, sometimes they set one another up, you know, where somebody got blamed for something that they really didn't do. Nobody, st you know, nobody stood up for them. Nobody's, nobody took ownership. Nobody accepted responsibility. All of that. But I, I just, you know, I was, I was accompanying them, supporting them. Uh, when they got a, out of detention and they had their probation officer, sometimes I'd talk to the probation officer, I'd go with them to counseling. It was, it was that, and it was hoping that they would be able to make the change that they wanted to make but some of them couldn't make, and some of them didn't make, and some of them were killed. And, uh, but I began to see, too, how difficult it is, because when they'd be picked up and they'd go on probation, one of the things of probation was that you're not to, affiliate, you're not to associate with gang members. But their gang members were members of their own family. 
their gang members were they'd be walking down the street and they'd see a friend who was a gang member and they'd be picked up again and I began what are they what are they supposed to do that's their family I mean if you know Martha Gonzalez did you know Martha um I've, I've heard stories about well, her, Martha's fantastic she you know turned her life around but she came from a gangbanging family her family members were gangbangers I mean, she's made it. She's fantastic. She's fantastic, and she's doing fabulously well. But there were a lot of things I couldn't get together in my mind, which is like, how are they supposed to make the change we want them to make if we don't help to support them in making that change? I'd say the same thing today. How can we ever expect young people to make all these changes if, if the adults are not there. I used to, and I, I remember seeing this, and it's still a question for me. Now, I haven't been there for 14 or 15 years on a day-to-day -day basis like I was, though I'm still very involved, but I wasn't there day-to-day -day opening and closing. But I used to see um, a young person around that pool table where he would hit the other guy he's doing you know this thing with his pool racket right or and he'd hit the other guy and then they'd get into it and uh and i worked with chris smart if you remember chris smart well chris chris and i we were a team chris smart was some of the programs i was some of the program but we bring that youngster in and say and i can remember saying I, that was like down, you know, cool off time. I saw you hitting another youngster. I saw you hitting someone. No, I didn't. And I would say, but I saw you doing it. No, I didn't. And I remember, and it's still a question for me, that I remember wondering whether some of our young people at a place called home actually know what truth is. And I began to real, and I would still, for some of them when they grew up in their family, everything was about survival. And I really, I really questioned myself about, do they know, do they know what truth is, where of course when you grow up like it with us in a, in a Catholic school, you think, oh now that this is a lie and this is telling the truth and you know, you didn't tell the truth, you know, all of this, this thing. But I used to think for some of them, they, they did not know, they didn't, because they were so into a survival mode that you never take responsibility. You know, we 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 grow up and we'd say, no, take responsibility for what you did. <laughs> you know, take responsibility and don't do it again. Right? That's the basic thing. What you did, own up to it and don't do it again. Their life, at least the youngsters in that in that time, because as you say, they were, they were a handful, but um they didn't have and some of the parent the parents would be in jail or the parents had come and they couldn't be you know they couldn't be responsible for the children going with them because they'd be high on drugs or high on something or other and I, so the thing about it is like when you say 
did it conflict or did it? No, no. But my way, and they knew it, my way was a different way. My, it was a different way. And Marcos, did you ever remember Marcos? I don't Mar think so. Well, Marcos, Marcos was a real, he was really tough. And uh, Marcos had a lot, a lot, a lot of challenges. But, you know, I can remember Marcos and his language and everything. And then he'd see me and he'd say, all right, don't talk that way around Sister Pat. Like that they, they, they kind of knew that I had, a, you know, I was, you know, not um, going along with it, but I was trying to help them because I really believed it was helping them to live a fuller life because they were into destructive behavior. And I remember Yvonne Stiles, who's head of the counseling department, um, she, used, she used to come, you know, because I used to say, Yvonne, this youngster really needs you to talk to her. Sometimes they'd be thrown out of school, they'd be thrown out of school. And at that time, the Department of Justice had a, an alternative program that instead of going to camp, you would get counseling and you would do volunteer work of some description. And I can remember Yvonne told me, you know, then the youngster would have to come in and then the mother would have to come in. And the youngster was thrown out for the bad language, thrown out of school because he, his language. I mean, terrible. Anyway, terrible. But the mother came in, and, you know, she said, I'm not going to, but if that, if that M, er, if he thinks he's going to, you know, be kicked out, and the mother, the mother was using the language for which the youngster yeah. was thrown out of school. It's so, what you know. I mean, uh, we... You were saying that you didn't know if people knew what truth was. And yeah, that will sound that. crazy to some people. It would sound. However, I can appreciate that, and I think you're right. Because I remember um, being very surprised that one of the girls I was working with when she was in high school, Vicky, didn't really know what a bill was, right? And... I mean, that's something you do every day. You pay your bills, right? And I remember um, being in the kitchen with her and her saying, Julie, what are you doing? I said, paying bills. And she said, but what are you doing? And I said, oh, this is a good lesson. You know, when you grow up and you get your own apartment, you're going to not only have to pay rent, you're going to have to pay for the electricity and the TV. You have to pay every bill. So I'm paying bills. And she said... But what are you doing? And I looked at her, and this is somebody that's thriving in high school. And I said, Vicki, what do you mean what am I doing? And she just looked at me and she said, I thought you only had to pay the red ones. And I had never even seen a red bill in my life. And it blew my mind that she didn't have an awareness of what paying a bill was. So whether it's why certain language is an issue or what truth is versus survival, you're right. People don't have these tools to learn how to be an adult. Well, at the same, when we started the scholarship program, and it was 
in its early, early days, you know, we worked everything out. We didn't have it the way it is now. We were working it out, kind of. And we had the first Shaheen Scholarship people. We said, all right, what we'd like you to do is to keep you the receipts of what you spend and give us the receipts. They did not know what the receipts were. Like at the end of a month, you know, because we were, we were, for some of them we were paying their ex, their expenses. It could have been food or whatever. But we said, no, before we give you the money, you have to show us the receipts. That was, that was a huge mountain to climb, those financial things. Now, of course, they have it down right. pat. And, you know, you're not late, and you're not this, or you're not that. But it was very different at that time. And uh, that was a huge thing. Uh, it's like to get to help them to understand about how much you're going to be spending each month. It was huge. It was huge. Um, one of my favorite stories Deborah told me was, and I had never heard this, and I didn't really even realize, right when I first started volunteering at a place called home, she had had her really big accident. And since I was new and just kind of hearing things word of mouth, I just knew she was, I thought she was sick and not able to be at the center every day anymore. But she had this horrible accent. Life-threatening. And apparently she was in a coma for a while. Yeah. And she was telling us when she came to, you were standing at the edge of her bed. I was sitting there, yes, it's true. No, so she, how long had she been out? And just explain this whole story to us. Because we heard it from Deborah's side. <laughs> well, Deborah. um... Uh, was in what was like a, she was driving what was like a jeep at that time if you but there was this fellow on a motorcycle who had his helmet on who went through a red light and he was like a, a missile going through the air hitting the car the car rolled over and slammed Deborah and um, she was in Santa Monica and fortunately UCLA However it happened, they came and they got her, and she was in the um, trauma unit. And uh, when she came in, she was there for days and days. And um, we did not know, her family did not know, uh, if she could hear, if she could talk if she could move her arm or her legs, did not know what state she was in. And so what happened was, uh, amongst our, a group of us, mainly her family, mainly her family, in fact it was her family, and decided that we would take like a vigil, a couple of hours, in case she ever woke up because she had all these machines. And again, the thing was, we did not know what's, you know, we didn't know if she could know, if she knew who you were, we didn't know if she could do it, move her arm or anything. So, um, and at this point, your sister Pat, yes. are you like 
calling out the alerts. Prayers for Deborah. <laughs> Everybody. Oh, people knew. Oh, people knew. People, because in, in the community, they all knew. And then I can remember, like, I would, I was at a place called home, so I would go, whatever time it was, I'd go for a couple of hours. That's the way it would be. And then her son, Gideon, usually came during the night in case she woke, woke up. But anyway, I was there this one day, and it was about 1030, because I'd leave at 11, and then Gideon would come on. And now what she, I know she always said she gave me the, thing, the finger. In a way, she was right. But what she did was, she always says that, she, you know. But what she did, I was sitting there, and all at once, this pillow was thrown at me. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't have a heart attack. No, she threw the pillow. And then she did something with her. You're, that's exact. But I don't know if it, she gave me the finger. She could have. But she did do something with her hand. That's for sure. But what it was, she threw the pillow. And... Uh, we didn't know if she could talk. But anyway, I remember calling her sister, Victoria, and saying, Deborah has just <laughs> awoken. And, and we didn't know. She, and that, to me, her whole, that whole illness that she had was a real metaphor for me of working with the young people at a place called home. Because she was on every conceivable type of life support system. Breathing, every, everything possible, she was on it. And then the whole thing was that um, to be able for her own body to kick in, you had to gradually withdraw what it was in terms of the life support. And if for example, with the breathing, if you never withdrew it, then she would never be able to breathe on her own. And I can remember thinking, and gradually one thing, you know, we didn't know, so one thing was, and I remember the day that they were going to take off the, the respirator, and we didn't know, I was at a place called home, and we did not know if she would be able to breathe on her own. And... Uh, Anyway, obviously she was. But I thought, if this isn't a metaphor for the young people at a place called home, that they need life support. They need life support. And then once they're, they start to kick in themselves, withdraw it. Because if you don't withdraw it, then they never manage on their own. But yeah, that's, that's what happened. She threw the pillow. She gave me the finger. I don't think it was the finger she thinks it was. But anyway, she likes to tell that story. I know she, maybe it was. But, but I remember calling her sister, and I, and I remember the thing about she has, she has awoken. And that was because of the trauma unit at, at, at UCLA. Otherwise, she would have died. She would have died. This was 1999. And then gradually, of course, then she had to go into physical. I mean, one thing after another started to come back. Her, her, we didn't know she could speak. Couldn't. Um, but that was weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And 
But I've never, I've never really forgotten that lesson. I've never, because without the life support, you would have died. And uh, I've never, and I, and I've often thought of it as the real metaphor for a place. Well, at least the way it was in those days. Yeah. You know, it was, it was. They, they, and they still do need support. They absolutely do. Um, they absolutely do. But it's it's a real lesson to me, in terms of um, you know withdraw to see if if they can manage on their own, and then of course for Deborah it would be and if if they need if they need another if they need a little help, it be there for them. But you have to realize that for them to be able to to survive, they're going to have to do it on their own. That's the big thing. But those were those were very, very, very difficult times. Very difficult times. One thing I love um, about the mentoring program is they often say, "Join and you'll change two lives." Not only a young person, but your own. Um, is there a story or a member that you remember, or something that really impacted you at a place called home and changed your life, or? Any one in particular? Well, there's so many different stories. There's the story of Nydia. Did you know Nydia? I do. Well, we had, there was. Well, I don't want to get into too much about Nydia's life, but Nydia was one of our first members. And uh, when I first met her, she was pregnant. Johnny was the father, and I don't want to say too much on the recording but anyway it was a very very difficult time and then um, little uh, Amber was born and Amber would be at a place called home because Nydia was there there was a lot of turmoil in Nydia's life because of violence and um, Anyway, one of the things that happened was little Amber was growing up there, and uh, to make a, you know, I'm leaving out a lot, but um, Nydia needed to do something to take care of Amber. So I remember going down to Parlos Ninos with her, and to make a long story short, they were marvelous at Parlos Ninos, and little Amber got into the Parlos Ninos program, which made it possible for Nydia to go to school and she went to um, college and um, she eventually got her BA degree and little Amber went on because she had a good foundation from Parlos Ninos and this was I don't know how many years ago maybe f four or five years ago I can't remember when but I got this invitation from Nydia that she had passed her master's degree and that she was having a party and that she wanted me to come and that she herself is a counselor and she told me at the party she said sister pat because of what i've gone through i am the unique counselor for so many people because i've experienced it myself and there was this tall beautiful looking person going around and it was amber lovely lovely 
So that's that's a story really of of two lives, of two lives, Amber's life and Nydia's life. That a place called home was there for. What would you say to people? I know a lot of people that hesitate from volunteering because they think they don't have anything to offer or they think they don't have enough money to donate. And I always try to talk about if you just show up, that really matters. But what advice would you give people? Well, you know, when, De- when Deborah began, um, it wasn't really about the money because she, although she was in charge of distributing John Douglas's money, but what she was doing was lining up the realtors with the youth at, uh, at Jefferson High School. And like you said about helping two people, it was the young person plus the volunteer, the realtor that was changed. But I would say that the big thing is time in terms of volunteering. And that what a lot of the young people, and again, it was at that time, maybe the family structure for many of them now has changed, or at least some of them. They have some parent there. But what I found was that they really need someone to talk to because sometimes they've never really talked to an adult, and especially a caring adult, unless they were bad-mouthing and then the parent bad-mouthed them or the whoever it was. So I would just say, if they can, if they, the first thing I would say is, if they could give their time to care and listen to a young person, I think that's the big thing, to listen to them, to show up and to listen, or to call. And then I think what's necessary is, if there is somebody who can be available um, to guide the person if they come into you know, a difficult terrain where they don't know how to deal with it, so they don't have to think that they have to deal with everything themselves. And that was the great role that Tony LeRae had in terms of if there was any problem that you knew that there was someone there, you could just say, what do I do in this situation? And especially at that time, and maybe it was with the young people that you mentored, that they're, you know, they're not responsible. They don't necessarily call you back. They don't necessarily show up themselves, even though you show up. But the important thing is to be there for them. So I would think the biggest thing that can change a young person's life is a caring adult. That's for the, that's for the mentoring or the volunteering. That's the biggie. Don't disappoint them by not showing up. Try to show up. Try to phone them if you can't. That's the big thing. And it's not a question of money or taking them here or taking them there. You could meet in a park. You could meet in a park. You could go, go take a walk with them. Um, I had a friend that was a musician, and they wanted to go to a place called home but didn't know what they should do. And in their mind, they had to lead a lesson or they needed to bring something down. And I kept telling them, just go. The door's open. Just go. And finally, a mutual friend of ours took them down, and they showed up, and they went into the music room, and the musician was a singer, and they didn't know how to play the drums, and drum lessons were happening. 
And so he just sat down and took a drum lesson with the kids. And the kids were laughing that they could do it better than him. Perfect. And it was just that showing up, that relation of being on the same level. Exactly. That's perfect. That's a perfect. So I want to get your thoughts on, um, I just think it's so interesting. Things have changed in the time so much, right? Um, People, I don't know in Los Angeles, a ton of people that have the same community with the church. I know some, but I do feel like spirituality is as big of a topic as ever. And um, I do think that a lot of people believe in higher powers and turning for help and asking for help. And, you know, there's prayer and there's manifesting. What's your relationship been like or ritual in tough times how do you maybe that's a very personal question to say how do you communicate with god but i just i'm interested you know well one of the things that i'd have to say in terms of myself is that i have never felt alone i have always felt that god is with me Like if I was facing difficult circumstances, maybe it was illness, maybe it was something in my family, um, the death of someone I was close to, I always felt that I was not alone. And I think that that relationship, I think the whole, I I think the whole thing, because I'm a follower of of Christ. I think the whole thing with Christ was his relationship to the Father, to God, God's relationship to him. It was the whole thing of a relationship. And I would I I would think that the big thing in spirituality, at least for me, is that sense of a relationship with God, with the higher power, with the holy, with and I think if in the midst of our busy, chaotic days, if a person could just take, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time or it doesn't have to be in a quiet, quiet place, but just take a moment to center themselves and to be aware that there is, um, if you wanted to call it a presence or a relationship, that is there, that you're part of something, or that you're, maybe people wouldn't say, well, that God is with me because I don't know who God is, but I think it's that thing about the centering and being able to get in touch with the fact that you are not alone. That, I think, is very big. I think it's very big that no matter what you're going through, and I think for people... Um, part of our difficulty, I think, is our lives are so busy. And there's so much noise. Now, this is my own take, anyway. There's so much noise, and there are so many messages that are going out to people that I think it's very difficult for people to really to get in touch with themselves, maybe at the deepest level of their being, however they wanted to say it, and to say that there is a higher power, however a person's understanding would be, 
I, I relate to that because in my life, even though I don't go to church every weekend, I am a big meditator. Right. Well, that's it. And it's those moments when you're by yourself and you're shutting off that you can feel that energy, right? Connecting in. And I've never equated it to religion, but that makes a lot of sense to me. And for me, now, for me, the message of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to me, um, the message of forgiveness, the message of I will be with you always, or the message of knock and you will receive, seek and you will find, uh, and the door's going to be open to you. And to me, that message, and I know there are you know, different, different whatever beliefs that people have, that um, I think the message of forgiveness is tremendously needed, tremendously needed. Um, I think the whole uh, um, thing of, of, of people, I mean, some of the stories in our gospel, I mean, the story of the good shepherd who, and the good shepherd and the prodigal son who went off and blew everything, spent all of his father's money, and but the father was there to welcome him back. I mean, the stories are so beautiful. And I think they're very life-giving for people. Um, I once had, um, we had one of, well, um, we had one of our members, one of the people who actually was working at a place called home, a neighbor who uh, was killed and uh, anyway, he was being buried from Forest Lawn and couldn't get a minister, couldn't get a priest. So one of our sisters um, went to Forest Lawn and she gave, she would get, led the service, gave the service, the whole thing. And uh, it was a, it was uh, I, it was just a very very difficult time. Um, it was a dangerous time too, but anyway, it was a very difficult time. And shortly after thereafter, one of the gangbangers was walking out to the car with me and said that he he said I really like I really like Sister Renee's talk. I really liked it. it meant a lot to us to hear that. And then he said, is it really true that God forgives me no matter what I've done? And then, I mean, the core of Catholic teaching, right? The core of the message is God forgives if you're truly sorry. Remember all that? If you are truly sorry and you try not to ever do it again. And, um, I mean, that can be life-giving for people. That can be life-giving. But I think, I think part of, I mean, I think part of our problem, as a, uh, we're, we're everything, there's such frenetic activity and there's so many messages that the people are being bombarded with. And I think, if, I think if people could take like a few minutes for the meditation or put on some quiet music or, 
I th- you know, I think it's life-giving. I think that's good advice. Thanks so much. I don't think people know. I don't even think people know what the quiet is anymore. You know? Yeah, anxieties on the rise. I mean, so many young people are just crippled with anxiety. When I first started mentoring, a lot of kids were dealing with life challenges or depressed, but now so many of them, it's just anxiety. We had a, I was, uh, I had a thing on uh, PBS about it and the suicide rate of young people. It, um, and they had a, it was it was a doc a doc one of these doctors and he said a lot of times what people are going through if you could just accompany them while they're going through it or maybe to get some psych some therapy or something that they're going to come through it they'll come through it but but if 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 there's that experience that they're not alone that somebody is walking with them and but they were also talking about the suicide rate of young people. That's why we all need to get out and be involved, right? We and need, give people their time. Not get, only volunteering, but checking on your friends and people you love. And but isn't the, and and you know that's the greatest gift I think. It's like what you said. What the thing about a volunteer? The greatest thing a volunteer can give is themselves. To show up, show up, and listen. That's what they need. And even if they're going, you know. Yeah. You know. And then call them up and say, I'm thinking about you. How are you doing? And they may not answer. They may not call back. But don't give up on them. That's, I think, I think that's another thing. Just don't give up on them. That was Deborah's message. Don't give up. We can't give up. And that's... Um, just a little microcosm of everything going on in the world, right? With politics or anything. Can't give up. 